Welcome and good evening. I'm glad you can join us tonight as we go through the 46th Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 46. If you want to turn there, we're going to make it through the whole Psalm, Lord willing. It's only a few verses, so we should be able to make it through there. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff tonight, a lot of verses we'll reference, so uh, be ready to jot those down if you want to go back and study some of these verses uh, in more detail later. But we will be in the 46th Psalm. While you're turning to that, I want to let everybody know that uh, starting next week, we may not be uh, having these video sermons posted online anymore. We're going back to our normal schedule, praise the Lord. Starting this Sunday, we'll be back uh, with our normal schedule. Apart from Sunday school, we're not going to be having that. And Lord willing, starting next Wednesday night, we're going to uh, get back to our Wednesday night services. And so I don't know that I'll be able to record the video of the services from this point forward. Now, I've done that through uh, the coronavirus because it's a little easier for me. I can record during the day, and so doing videos, okay. Uh, I can set the camera up and everything works out good. But uh, in live services, I don't know of a, a real good solution for that. Now, uh, all of our sermons are recorded. The audio version of them are, are available all the time. Those have been available for five years now. So you can always get the audio version of the sermon, uh, and I'll probably still continue to post those on Facebook and YouTube, uh, but just be aware that that'll just be the audio. Uh, you won't get to look at me. That may or may not uh, matter to you. You may you may would rather have the audio version, so that may work out good for you. Uh, but uh, starting next week, the video version may not be available. It may. We'll have to see how things go, but uh, the audio version of these will continue to uh, be available to you. Uh, don't forget, as I just mentioned, starting Sunday, normal time, back in the sanctuary, 11 o'clock, normal service, no Sunday school yet. Lord willing, we'll get back to that uh, before too long, but Sunday service is starting back this Sunday. Lord willing, next Wednesday, we will start back with our Wednesday night services at our normal time. And so I hope you can uh, come back for, for that and, and join us for that. You can wear a mask if you want to. That's optional. Uh, if you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, please do. If you want a social distance, just let us know. That's fine. No, no problem. We'll all respect that. We don't want to get too close. We want to still uh, try to be safe if we can. So it's probably best that we do try to keep a little distance. But uh, do what you feel comfortable doing. And if you feel comfortable shaking somebody's hand and they're comfortable with it, then uh, do so at your own risk. Uh, and if you don't feel comfortable doing it, just, just say, hey, I don't, I don't want to get too close still trying to be safe. And we will do our best. Everybody will hopefully to uh, respect that. All right. So let's get into the word tonight. Psalm 46. Now this is a good psalm. Uh, at least the first verse is a verse that I quote often. And really, I, I would consider it to be a key verse for uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of things tonight. Uh, and so, with that being said, let's get started. We'll read through the whole psalm, then we'll pray, and then we'll break things down. Psalm 46. For the choir director, a song of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with its turmoil, Selah, there is a river, its streams delight the city of God. 
the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, see the works of the Lord, who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He burns up chariots. Stop your fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you tonight and I thank you for these good words. And I pray that there'll be a blessing to everybody that hears them. And I pray, God, that you would help us to learn from your word, to grow in your word, and to see you as our strength, dear Lord. No matter what we may be up against, God, I pray that we would find strength in you and not be afraid of what's around us, not be afraid of our enemies, not be afraid of our situations, but to know that you are there with us, that you are fighting for us, and that you will watch over us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Now, we have a, 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 a title before this psalm, just as we did the last psalm we looked at. And as we talked about last week, some of these psalms have a title. Now, these were meant to be sung, in particular these that say, For the Choir Director, like what we saw with Psalm 45. For the Choir Director, a song uh, of the sons of Korah. Now, a lot of these titles, it's hard for us to know exactly uh, what this meant. Perhaps the sons of Korah were the ones who had written this song. Perhaps they were the ones who uh, were singing this song. Uh, it's really hard to know exactly what some of these titles meant when they were written in the Psalms. And this one says, according to Alamoth. Now, that could be uh, similar to what we talked about last week. It could be the tune to which it was to be sung. It could be the key uh, which it was to be sung in. Last week it said, according to the lilies. Now, these are things that we just don't know exactly what they mean. Uh, so I'll let you do more research on that if you're curious about this title or other titles. Uh, but, but this indeed was a song that was to be sang, sang uh, by God's people and a song that looked like a song of praise, a song of saying, okay, God, we are holding on to you. We are trusting you. We know your power. We know your strength. We know your greatness. Now, we don't know what God's people were going through at the time this psalm was written, it doesn't tell us. There are no, uh, no doubt many situations to which this psalm would have fit in Israel's history uh, when enemies were coming against uh, Israel and they were calling out to God and God was with them and God was delivering them. This would have fit in many different occasions. So we don't know when this psalm was written or who it was written to. <clears throat> now we see this with a lot of the psalms. It's hard for us to know exactly uh, what event they cover. Now, some have, have, uh, have suggested that perhaps this covers some of the events maybe that we saw in Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, for instance, uh, when Jehoshaphat was, was up against some enemies uh, that were coming against him, it was the uh, Moabites and the Edomites, I believe, uh, and, and God was with Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel and delivered them in that instance. It's a great story. You can find that in Second Chronicles 20. Uh, or perhaps it covers the story that took place in Second Chronicles 32, 
with Hezekiah as the Babylonians were coming against God's people. And God was with them and God delivered them from the power of the enemy. Those are a couple of, of places where this could fit. And regardless of whether we know exactly what was going on, that doesn't change the fact of what the psalm is talking about and the truth that this psalm speaks of. Let's look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Now, it doesn't matter if we know who this psalm was written by, who it was written to, at what time it was written. It makes no difference because the words of the first verse that we see here are true to any follower of God at any time in history. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Now that's a truth we need to remember. That's a truth we need to stand on because there are days that we are weak. There are days that we cannot go on. There are days that there are enemies against us. So what do we do? Well, we try to fight it ourselves sometimes. We try to deal with the situations ourselves. Uh, we try to deal with the stresses and the burdens of life and the situations we are in, but we can't do it. They are too much for us. They are too overwhelming for us. And so we need to remember the truth of this verse, that God is with us, that he is our refuge and strength. He is our help in a time of trouble. And each and every one of us have times of trouble. We have times that we need help. And God is the one who will help us. God is the one who we can run to and be protected from when the storms of life come. And we can count on that. Let's continue on in verse 2. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with its turmoil, Selah. Now, here we have some language that we really see throughout the Old Testament, and I guess we could even say throughout the Bible if we want to account, account Revelation and some of, the, some of the language that's used there. But uh, the, the writers of this psalm says, look, I'm not going to be afraid. Not going to be afraid of what? Well, we have some language here. Through, uh, though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the sea, Though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with its turmoil. Now here we have some description of some pretty serious things that are going on. Uh, we can imagine the, the earth rumbling and, these, and mountains toppling into the sea. I mean, this would have been a pretty major event. And if you want to skip on down to verse 6, uh, it may go along with the same kind of idea here where it says, Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts when he lifts his voice. Now, what are we to take of language like this, where it talks about mountains toppling into the ocean, the earth trembling, uh, uh, the mountains melting? What are we to take of this kind of language? Is this to uh, be taken literally, or is this figuratively, or what are we to make of this language? Now, it's important that we uh, kind of decide how we're going to take these type of things as we read through Scripture, because we see this kind of language uh, quite frequently in the Old Testament, and even, as I mentioned, sometimes in the New Testament and Revelation. But the question is, are we to take these things literally, or are we to take them figuratively, or are there times that we are to do both? Well, that's a question you are going to have to read the Scriptures and decide for yourself. 
Now, when we see some of these things, we may run into problems if we take them literally. We may say, well, you know, I've never seen a, a mountain melt before, or has there ever been a mountain that the whole mountain is toppled into the sea? Well, perhaps. It's not that God could not do that. Uh, but the, the language that's used there may be symbolic language. It may be that these, this is just a way of saying when God comes onto the scene, it's when God speaks, when God is present, boy, things are going to get serious. The whole earth is going to tremble. Now, that could be taken in a figurative way to say, all right, the power of the Lord is here, and it's going to be a major thing when God appears. Uh, it, it could also be taken literally. The earth literally trembles sometimes. Uh, think about earthquakes. We see uh, things like that mentioned throughout Scripture, and we still see earthquakes today, and perhaps that's what uh, the psalmist means here when they say, that the earth trembles. And so it could be a figurative way that these words are used that we see both here and in other instances in Scripture, or it could be literal. It could be that something literal is taking place, but it's being described with, with strong language. Uh, that is, maybe when it talks about uh, mountains being made low and valleys being raised in certain Scriptures, it may not be speaking in a, in a physical sense. It may be speaking of, uh, let's say, a, 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 a place is referred to as a mountain, maybe. That's the illustration there. Maybe it's a strong city that's being destroyed, and maybe it's a weak nation that's rising. Uh, that would fit Israel's history and some of the enemies they went up against that were powerful, that were huge. And while the enemies were being toppled, uh, Israel was being raised up because they were with God. Now, there you have what you could called figurative language, but it applies to something in a physical sense. It's not just uh, literally there for show. There really is something physically that happens, although what is being described is not actually what happens. And that could be the case with some of these verses like we see here. It can be describing a physical event that took place, a physical battle, let's say. For instance, it was those referenced from Second Chronicles. Maybe it was one of those events. Well, these words would, would, would go along with what God did. That is, his power came. There was a, a, a strength that came in his power for his people. And maybe these events didn't happen literally. Maybe mountains didn't literally topple into the sea, or maybe the earth didn't literally melt. Obviously, we know the earth didn't melt because the earth is still here. And so some of, these, some of this language we see in the Bible it's clear to know that this is figurative language because, as we saw in verse 6, the earth melts. Well, we haven't seen that take place yet. The earth has not melted, even though it says so in this verse, which happened thousands of years ago. And so there are some verses, I believe, that are figurative. They are, they are, they are worded in a way to get our attention to show us the power or the strength of something that's taking place. Here are the power and the strength of God. Sometimes we see things that are literal. The, the, what it says may have literally happened. The earth may have literally trembled, or it may be simply symbolic language. And there may be yet other times that it uses symbolic language to describe something that did physically happen in some way. And these are things we need to be aware of, and particularly when we look at books like Revelation, because there is such strong symbolic language there. Well, what do we take literally in Revelation, and what do we take symbolically? Well, that takes a lot of time and a lot of uh, flipping back to the Old Testament, because what we will find when we look at the book of Revelation is a lot of that language is language that is used in the Old Testament. 
things that it describes that are going to happen in the future that have happened in the past. And so uh, if it happened in the same way in the past that it is in the future, well, do we know if that literally happened? Well, in some cases, we know it didn't literally happen in Scripture. So perhaps there are instances in the book of Revelation where things are not meant to be taken literally but symbolically. But that's a whole other topic for another time. But something we need to be aware of when we see this type of language in Scripture. Now, speaking of things like the earth melting, we see other examples of that. If you want to uh, flip to them, you can, or just listen close. I'll go through them quickly for time's sake. But in Isaiah 13, 7, it says, uh, Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak, and every man's heart will melt. Now, here we have that same type of language used. And they're not speaking about the earth or a mountain or anything like that that we see in other parts of Scripture. But here it says a man's heart. Now, that seems pretty clear that that's symbolic language because our hearts don't literally melt. Uh, but sometimes when people are in fear, uh, it may seem as though their heart is melting, their strength is gone, their hope is gone. Uh, and we may see examples uh, in that way that's symbolic language, not speaking of a, of a physical heart that's melting, but, but uh, speaking of someone saying, okay, they have lost heart, not that their heart has been taken from them. Uh, we understand symbolic language in that way. In Micah chapter 1 verse 4 it says, the mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. Now again we have this language of, 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 a, of a mountain that is melting and of a valley that's being split apart. Now, could God physically do these things? Could God make a mountain melt? Well, I suppose he could. He's God. Uh, he could do that, and he definitely makes valleys part. We, we see that even today, as I mentioned earlier, with earthquakes. But this is the type of language, and this is just a couple of examples, but this type of language is used frequently in Scripture. And we can't just say we always are going to take it literally because we run into problems when we read Scripture if we do that. But we also can't say this is always figurative because there are instances where what is being described may have occurred either just the way it was described or in some other physical way that the, the language used was symbolic of. And so uh, we see that type of thing throughout the Scripture. And so uh, what we can, uh, at the very core, take from what we have looked at is that, look, there are times that there are going to be bad things that are going to be upon us, things that are going to be horrible. But what we see here is the strength and the power of God described to us in a way that helps us to see that, that he is a, a, a powerful one. He is in control, and when he speaks, when God comes onto the scene, the earth melts. Uh, nothing can stand before God. The mountains topple. Nothing can stand before the strength of God, not even the very planet that we live on, much less our enemies. And you can uh, take that physically or, 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 or figuratively or literally, whichever one you see fit. But, but the key of what is being said here cannot be uh, uh, mistaken. It's saying that God is powerful. Now, let's go back up to verse 4. We had skipped down to verse 6, but let's look at verse 4 and 5. It says, There is a river. Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Now, this is kind of an inter uh, interesting verse for us to consider. 
And I believe when it speaks of this river here, I believe it's speaking of God. It says, there is a river, its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. Now, where is the holy dwelling place of the Most High? Well, it says here that it is this city of God, and there is a river, its streams delight the city of God. And then it says in verse 5 that God is within her. So if God is within this city, and this river delights this city, and it says that the holy place of the Most High is this city. This is where God dwells. What are we to make of this kind of language? Well, I think in the context it's saying, look, that God is with his people. I think that's probably uh, basically what's being said here, that God is with his people. But is there any, any other scripture that may help us to dig a little deeper into that, to connect it to us today in our lives? Well, I think that there are lots of scriptures that would help us maybe connect that to the Christian life today. And the same truth that God is speaking for his people in this verse uh, is, is expanded for us through Jesus Christ in the New Testament in that God dwells in us and that God is that river. Now, even though it doesn't clearly say that God is the river here, uh, it, it seems as though that's the case, that, that he is the one that is being spoken of here. If you want to look, we'll look at a few different uh, New Testament uh, passages. Well, first let's look at an Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 33, verse 21. Now, it seems as though this passage at the end is, is, is speaking of, uh, of heaven, if we can call it that, that is to come, that, that uh, a restoration that's going to come from God. And in Isaiah 33, verse 21, this is what it says, For the majestic one, our Lord, will be there, a place of rivers and broad streams, where ships that are rowed will not go, and majestic vessels will not pass. Now, it's speaking of a place that, that uh, those who trust in God are going to be, and the majestic one, our Lord, will be there, a place of rivers and broad streams. Now, it uses this same language. We have God, and we have the reference to a river, but it's not speaking of a physical river because it clearly says here that ships uh, will not be able to go there and vessels will not be able to pass. So it seems as though this river that's being spoken of is spoken of symbolically, that this is uh, speaking in a spiritual uh, sense to us. Uh, we have another good reference, I think, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, then he showed me the river of living water. Now, this takes place at the end of Revelation. This is what we would call heaven, uh, where God is going to be and God's people are going to be with him, and this is where this river is. Uh, then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb of God. Now, here we have this reference to a river. It's, it's, it's referenced as living water, and where does the river come from? It comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ. And so we see a couple of examples here of where this reference of God and this reference of river, uh, of a river, and even this reference of living water here in this, uh, we see that these things, at least, at least to me, appear to be uh, speaking of something that's going to occur, and it's speaking of God, and this river is God, or this river comes from God. And Jesus even says in John chapter 7, verse 38, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. 
So here we see this reference. Not only is it speaking of, of, of a river that is of God, but it's speaking of a river that is of God that is in us. Jesus said, look, if you follow me, if you come to me, if you are thirsty, that is, if you know you need a Savior, if you know you're a sinner, if you know that this life has burned you down and weighed you down, Jesus said, if you are thirsty, you come to me and I will give you water. What kind of water? Well, living water, the same that we saw in Revelation 22. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Now, all of these verses seem to kind of go together. They seem to kind of gel. Uh, and that's why I believe that in this psalm, in Psalm 46, when we speak of this river, I believe it's speaking of God. It's this river that is, that is, that is bringing comfort and delight uh, to God's people. As we see in verse 4, there is a river. It streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. Now, what is the city of God? Are we to take that maybe as Jerusalem, or are we to take that in a different way? Well, I believe that when it speaks of the city of God, I think it's speaking in a spiritual sense. Now, it could be speaking in a literal sense as well. It could have been speaking of a literal city there, but I think uh, by looking at Scripture as a whole, there's a, a, a much more grand application to be put on the city of God than simply an earthly city. And I believe that that application is for God's people. It says that God dwells there. God dwells where? Well, God dwells in the holy city. So are there any New Testament scriptures that may help us make that connection to what we read now and we get some application for our life as Christians? Well, I think so. Uh, if you want to read along with me with some of these, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22 says, you are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, when we come to Jesus Christ and we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that God dwells in us, that the Holy Spirit is within us. And this is just a simple verse to remind us of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary? and that the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, here we see the same language. In the Old Testament, there was a sanctuary, there was a temple, and God came there to that temple. To uh, It started with Moses and the tent of meeting, that God would come and dwell there. Uh, and then they built the tabernacle, and God would come and dwell there. And then they built the temple, and God would come among the people there. But God does not dwell in buildings made with human hands now. God tabernacles among us. That is, God dwells in us. We are God's sanctuary. Our bodies are a temple that God dwells within. And so we see this language, this same type of language like we see in Psalm 46. In Psalm 46, it says that God dwells in the city. But here in the New Testament, we see that God dwells among his people, that we are God's dwelling place. Let's read another passage, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Now, what household are we a part of? We are part of the household of Christ. Christ is the head of the household. And once we 
follow Jesus Christ, we enter into his household, but he also enters into us. The Holy Spirit also enters into us, that dwelling that we've been talking about. John chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus says here, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Now, this verse in some translations, uh, it's unfortunate that, that the word mansions is used. It says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, it's possible that when we are with God for all of eternity, that there will be mansions that we live in. That's a good possibility. And maybe that's the correct reading of the passage. That could be correct. But but the word that that... The most accurate uh, translation of the word probably is a dwelling place or an abode. And it says here, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Where, where does God dwell? He dwells among us. We are the dwelling places that God dwells in. When we accept Jesus Christ, we become a dwelling place of God. It's not just one temple or one tabernacle. There are many tabernacles. There are many dwelling places. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to the people there are many dwelling places. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, Jesus says it doesn't matter. God is going to dwell in me, or dwell in you if you follow me. And he says, look, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And so there we see that same type of language. Where did God dwell in Psalm 46? He dwelled in the city. Where does God dwell in the New Testament? He dwells in the believer. Now, I say that I think dwelling place is a better translation here, and we see that uh, maybe spelled out for us a little more clearly as we read through John chapter 14 in verse 23. It says, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, here I think Jesus is kind of expounding on what he said at the beginning. God the Father and the Son will come to him and make their home with the person who follows Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith and just trust in Jesus Christ, God dwells in us. Jesus says, look, we make our home in the person who follows Jesus Christ. And so I don't think it's a stretch when we, when we look at a passage like Psalm 46 and it says God dwells among his city that it's not speaking of a physical city necessarily, but speaking of God's people, that God is going to be there with his people, that he's going to dwell among his people, that his streams are going to flow among his people and bring delight to his people. And we've seen that same uh, references of rivers even in the New Testament, that when we are in heaven, that there is a river that flows from God, that Jesus says that when we follow him, there is a river that flows in us, that same type of language that we've seen in Psalm 46. Now, it says in verse 5, Psalm 46, verse 5, if you want to flip back there, God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Well, God is within who? Who is the her that's being spoken of here. Again, I think that this is pointing to God's people. Not a specific woman, but, but the people of God, the bride of Jesus Christ. And I think that the better application for what's being spoken of here is, again, spelled out for us in the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, 
those who follow Jesus Christ are referred to as the bride of Christ. So that would be a her, those who are God's people, the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter, uh, excuse me, yeah, Ephesians chapter 2 verse, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23. We see the good, uh, good example of this. Ephesians 5 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. So here we see this language, that, that those who follow Jesus Christ are the bride of Christ. He is the head of our household. We see the, the same language that we saw mentioned a while ago in Hebrews when it talked about Jesus being over the household. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of those who follow him. We are referred to as the bride of Christ or the church, as I just referenced. But we see this type of language. So I believe that verses like these help us to understand when it speaks of this her in Psalm 46, is speaking of the people of God because that's the same language that, that's used to speak of God's people in the New Testament. Paul uses the same, uh, same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, when he says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Here we see the same illustration, a wife and a husband. Who is the husband? It is Jesus. So who is the wife? It is those who follow Jesus Christ. Those who are Christians are the wife of Christ as he is the husband. Now, I think our best evidence for this is in Revelation. Now, we've talked about Revelation here a couple times, but, but I think that it's important for us to remember when we read Revelation, especially uh, in, in light of some of the things that really briefly we've discussed in the Old Testament and even seen in Psalm 46, that we need to try to pick up on some of the symbolism that we see in the book of Revelation. And it may not come to us instantly, especially if we've, if we've for years, maybe looked at Revelation in a, in a totally literal sense. We may want to go back and look and, and spend some time and say, okay, Maybe there is a maybe there is a a figurative meaning here, or maybe there's a, something that's that's trying to be explained to us that I've missed uh, throughout my readings. Uh, not to say that there aren't some things that are to be taken literally, or some things to be taken physically, uh, figuratively. Uh, I'm not trying to convince you to take it one way or the other. I'm just telling you to read it and, and decide for yourself, and make sure that there aren't some some symbolic things that maybe that we misunderstand because that's easy to do. Uh, e even when we read scripture a lot, there are probably symbolic things that we still have not gotten right. And that's okay. We just need to be aware that there is symbolism that is there. Now in Revelation chapter 21, verse two, John says here, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. Now, here we see the same language that we saw in, 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 in Psalm 46. This city that's being talked about, that God dwells in. God dwells in a city, and there is a river in the city that I believe is God. God is that river in that city in which God dwells. Uh, and here John sees a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now, is he speaking of a physical city? 
uh, a, a real city that's going to be set up on this planet uh, when all is said and done and God destroys the enemy and God uh, brings those who are his uh, into his presence. Will there be a physical city? Well, there possibly very well could be. It could be a physical city. But I think that this verse could be symbolic because look at what he says at the end of the verse. He says, he saw the city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now there, I think, is our clue. This city is, is, is compared to a bride. The city who's coming down, the holy city, is compared to a bride. And now, we just looked at the examples. Who else is referred to as a bride in the New Testament? Christians, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the groom, and those who follow him are the bride. Now, here we have a holy city that God obviously dwells in, and as we've seen through the rest of the New Testament and the few examples we looked at, where does God dwell? He dwells in his believers. Where do we see in Psalm 46? God dwells in the city. What is the city referred to as a her? Now, I think that these, these comparisons are, are worth considering here to help us to understand what we're looking at in Psalm 46. And so, when John is describing what he sees, he sees a holy city, but he, he describes the holy city as a bride. Now, let's read a little further into this uh, passage to see what else that he says. In uh, Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10, he says, Then one of the seven angels, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, here we kind of are going to see an opposite of what we just saw in verse 2. The angel says, I'm going to show you the bride. Now, we know who the bride is. We've already talked about that. The angel, I'm going to show you the bride. I'm going to show you those who follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you the Christians, the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Jesus Christ, the ones who have put their faith in him. I'm just going to show them to you. So let's see what the angel shows to John. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, here we see this connection. It's really undeniable, I think, in what we saw in verse 2 and what we see in verses 9 and 10. He sees a city, and the city is compared to a bride. The angel says, I'm going to show you a bride, and then he shows him a city. Here's this connection here. Here's this symbolic language that the city that's being spoken of here is the bride of Christ. It is those who are in Christ. It is those who are faithful to God. It is those uh, that, that God speaks of, that, that God dwells within. God dwells within us, and we are a holy city that God dwells within, that a river flows through, uh, just as we've seen here in Revelation, that the river flows from the throne of God and the Lamb of God. And so the language that we see when we look at Psalm 46 uh, may not be so different from what we see in the New Testament as we've looked at these examples. Now, I would encourage you to study this more. It's pretty interesting because what we see in the Old Testament a lot is we see kind of the, uh, the basis of something that God is pointing to in the future, uh, just kind of a glimpse of what we're going to see in Christ. Uh, when it was written. Now, Christ has already come, and we've already seen uh, Jesus in God's Word, and we know He exists, and we know God's Word is true. 
And we see all the scriptures that came after Jesus. And as we begin to look at all the things that we've seen in the life of Jesus and the things that were written after Jesus and about Jesus, we begin to see a lot of these things in the Old Testament that they are unfolding, that we, we had a glimpse of them, and, and you see a glimpse of what the symbolism is, but that, that, that glimpse of symbolism is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He brings everything full circle, and he fills in all the, uh, the, the spots where we may not understand things completely. And so what we see in this psalm is we see people praising God because they're saying, look, we know that God is great. We know his power and strength. We know that he is for us. We know that he is going to stand against our enemies and we are going to put our trust in him and he is going to be in us and we are going to delight in him. And God's people, even way back when this was written, had figured that out and they understood that. In the moment, they understood the greatness of God. But we understand that in a much more significant way, in a perfect way, through Jesus Christ. We understand this in the fullness of how it's going to play out, not just in this life, but for all of eternity. Now, let's read a little further in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Now, here we see that, that idea of God being our strength again, but I wanted to pause here on Selah. We see that word quite frequently in the Psalms, and it's really unknown as to what that word means. Uh, there's lots of different uh, guesses that people have and, and ideas that people have, but there's really no way to know. And you can research that, and you'll find some of those, some of those ideas. Uh, perhaps it's a, a time of pause in the Psalm, uh, that there's supposed to be a pause there. People are singing or reciting this that they are to pause for a moment. Perhaps it's a time that, that, that the people are supposed to recite that phrase back. Everybody's supposed to say, say, lie. Maybe it's like an amen. Maybe it's a, uh, something that the song leader would say and the people would respond with praise in some way. Those are just some of the things that it could mean. We really don't know what it means. So when you see that word, Selah, and you say, I don't know what that means, well, you're not alone because scholars have tried to figure that out for years and we still don't know exactly uh, what it means. Let's continue on a little further. Verse 8. Come see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes war cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He burns up the chariots. Now here we see some more of that language. Now does God, could he physically shatter bows and has he done that at some point in time in history? Yes, it's very possible that he has done that, but it's also possible that this could be symbolic language, that when God comes onto the scene, there's no weapon that can prevail against us. If, if the enemy has a bow or a spear or whatever, does it mean that God is literally going to come and he's going to take a knife and he's going to cut their spear to pieces? Well, maybe God could do that uh, in a physical way. I'm not saying that he cannot or has not. Perhaps he does act in that way. But this is definitely true, if not in a physical sense, it's definitely true in a symbolic sense. There is no weapon that can be formed against us. There is no enemy who can stand against us because we've already seen the psalmist acknowledge the power and the strength of God. And if God is our stronghold, we have nothing to fear. Who will stand against us? There's no weapon that can prevail. Verse 10, Stop your fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. Now, God is calling out to his people here to acknowledge him, remember him, listen to him, follow him, trust in him. 
Now this would fit, of course, with what we talked about earlier with Jehoshaphat or with Hezekiah, but this would also fit in many other instances as well. The key is, is to remember that it fits with our life, that we need to know that he is God, that he is above all nations and all people and all enemies, and we need to trust him. We need to exalt him and praise him and all of his greatness. And in verse 11, Yahweh, the host, is with us. The God of Jacob, our stronghold. Now, this psalm ends kind of the same way that it started. Praising God for his strength in the midst of the battles, the enemies, the situations, all the things that's going on, the psalmist continues to praise God because they have taken refuge in him and God's strength has delivered them. Now, we've covered a lot of ground in this psalm, but really we could have just stopped at verse 1 because all we need to know is in verse 1. And that's why it's a verse that comes to my mind quite regularly. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in a time of trouble. God's people, when they were writing this psalm, they had found God in their time of trouble. And you may be in a time of trouble today, and I want you to know you can find God and He will still be your strength today. And you find God by coming to Jesus Christ. You trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who gave His life on the cross so that you could be forgiven. Because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all people who face lots of trouble and lots of enemies and lots of hard times. But Jesus said, look, I want to help you through those hard times. I want to free you of those burdens. I want to be your strength. And I want to give you rest. And if we seek God today at our times of trouble, if we seek to make Him our refuge and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will find the strength of God. And He will help us to overcome anything we're up against. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for these good words. There's a lot of good stuff here, but I pray we don't miss the point. And the point is, God, that you are strong and you are with us and you gave your son Jesus Christ to die for us so that we could have that strength and security and deliverance and forgiveness. And God, I pray that we would find refuge in you today through Jesus Christ. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's service. To learn more about Jesus, call or text Pastor Shan at 601-657-0180 or email him at shanvn at me.com. You can also visit us at www.enterprisebaptist.church or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ebcliberty. We hope that you have been blessed by today's service.